0: Good morning and welcome on this third Sunday of Easter. And we're going to take a deep dive this morning into the identity of the two people that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus. And I'm going to throw in a lot of facts at you, but if you stick with me, I think there's going to be a big payoff for our prayer lives, for our understanding of how it is that we come to know Uh, In relationship, the crucified and risen Jesus, whom we gather together today and always to worship. Now, on the day of the resurrection, uh, that first Easter Sunday, two disciples were traveling on the road to Emmaus. Now, these were not capital uh, D disciples, all right? That That is one of the 12, or at this time one of the eleven, but these were followers, these were pupils of Christ, and according to St. Cyril of Alexandria, uh, these two were among the 70 that Jesus sent out to announce and enact the kingdom uh, in Luke chapter 10. One of the two on the road to Emmaus, we find out in verse 18 of Luke 24, is a man named Cleopas, Cleopas. And many from church fathers to contemporary biblical scholars have identified him with Clopas, whose wife, Mary, was present at the crucifixion. Thus the Clopas mentioned in John 19 and Cleopas mentioned here in Luke 24 are one and the same. Moreover, as attested by Eusebius, fourth century bishop and church historian, Cleopas is the brother of Joseph, the earthly father and guardian of our Lord, thus making Cleopas Jesus' uncle, according to the flesh. It gets better. But what of Cleopas' unnamed companion? He doesn't get a shout out. He's not in the credits. We never learn his name. Who could this have been? Bishop N.T. Wright suggests that it may has, have been his wife, Mary. The earlier tradition of the church, notably Origen, Eusebius, and Cyril, if I must share with you the footnotes, was wont to identify him as a man named Simon, who was the son of Cleopas, so Jesus' cousin. So we would have in that tradition a father and son walking the road to Emmaus. Another early tradition, notably put forth by St. Gregory the Great, and the one which I favor myself, if you need to know, which you don't, is that the anonymous companion is St. Luke himself, the author of the Gospel. And such a literary technique is not uncommon uh, in writing. It's not uncommon in the Gospels. If you remember in the Gospel of John, John St. John does not refer to himself by name, but rather as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it could have been a husband and wife walking the road to Emmaus. It could have been a father and and a son, it could have been two brothers in the Lord. And each possible answer to the question, who was the other traveler, has its unique ascetical emphasis, the way that it could shape and inform our prayer. If Cleopas and Mary, then men, walk with your wives. Ladies, walk with your husbands on the road to Emmaus. Together, know him in the scripture and in the breaking of bread. If Cleopas and his son, Simon, then parents, walk with Jesus and take your children with you on the journey. If Cleopas and Luke... Then, brethren in Christ, walk with the Lord. As iron sharpens iron, so sharpen one another as we walk together in faith. The Lord in his wisdom, working through Luke, leaves the other traveler nameless. And this anonymity of the other person, of the other disciple, invites us to enter into the story ourselves. To become the companion of Cleopas. To journey on the road to Emmaus with the crucified and risen Jesus in order that we might have our expectations of the Messiah upended. That we might marvel at God's plan foretold by Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory. And that we should know Jesus in the scriptures and in the breaking of the bread. Because the reality is that the way those ancient disciples came to see and recognize and know the Lord is the same way that we come to know him, through scripture and by the sacraments. We come to know Jesus in the scriptures because they are from him. That is, they are divinely inspired and they are all about him. The scriptures are ever pointing to and proclaiming and revealing Jesus and now when the writers of the New Testament are, are looking back on the Old Testament and saying this is what they were really all about, this is not, they're not retrofitting the events that happened many years before to fit this narrative of the new religion. No, God in his sovereignty allowed these events to take place in order to reveal his son Jesus Christ to the world. That's why they happened. Luke 24, 27 says this, And beginning, again, we'll hear it. This is from our gospel. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later in the same chapter, verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. It's amazing. So we don't go and read the Old Testament. We don't do a read through the Bible plan and start with Genesis and say, well, I want to read this in context and kind of like, Keep all the Jesus stuff till we get to the Gospel of Matthew. No, that's precisely the wrong way to read it. Because it's always been all about Jesus, it's about Him. Our Lord says as much Himself. And so we're ever reading Scripture, and we see this in the worship of the church. We, of course, see this in the teaching of the ancient church, that we read the Scriptures through a Christological lens, asking what is this revealing about the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than that, it's in Scripture that we we encounter not a bunch of words on a page, but the Lord of whom they speak. There's a sacramental dimension to the Holy Scriptures that in them... Our eyes are opened, and we see the Lord. The Bible is important. I hope you've gotten that in your time at this church. If not, perhaps shame on me. A life in Christ is a life in the Scriptures. Period. Full stop. And as St. Jerome said, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. And that's not just a rational, intellectual ignorance that you wouldn't be able to you know, answer the thousand dollar question on Jeopardy in the Bible. It's a relational ignorance that you won't know your Lord if you don't know the scriptures. We need the scriptures. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Walking with Jesus means hearing and reading and contemplating and praying and singing and, oh yes, obeying Holy Scripture. And you know what? That's what we do. That's what we do in the church the Book of Common Prayer which is our rule of faith and practice is a reordering of holy scripture for the purpose of worship. So anyone to ask you, okay, what's this book y'all are always talking about and using the Book of Common Prayer? Just say to them it's a reordering of holy scripture for the purpose of worship. So I That's the life of the church. So I urge you to enter more fully into that life, in part by digging into the Scriptures. Because if you read Holy Scripture, meditate upon Holy Scripture, in order, the motive is important, in order that you may see and know and encounter Jesus, the living Word, of which the Holy Scriptures are derivative. But Jesus is the Word of God. He's the Logos. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That doesn't mean Jesus transformed into a book. But the words of God bear witness to the Word of God. And that's who we want to encounter. And when we do that, we come to Holy Scripture... Uh, if you come to Holy Scripture and you read them in the Holy Spirit, it's an act of prayer and devotion to read Scripture, and you read the scriptures with the ancient church, as your guide, you will become as the disciple, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That is, your hearts will burn within you. When you're surrendered to God and you want to follow him and you want to know him when you hear the truth proclaimed, your heart burns within you. Our God is a consuming fire that changes and transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Luke 24, verse 30 and following, and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them and their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them what does that sound like i mean the similarity in language is striking between verse 30 of luke 24 and the account of the Last Supper, the feeding of the 5,000, and Paul's handing down of the Eucharistic tradition in 1 Corinthians 11. This, then, is clearly a reference to the Holy Eucharist. St. Augustine writes, and all the fathers would say something like this, He writes, and no one should doubt that his being recognized in the breaking of bread is the sacrament, which brings us together in recognizing him. We know Jesus in the breaking of the bread because in the sacrament, we receive Jesus himself. Again, listen to St. Augustine of Hippo. Almost just read his sermon to you, but it's so good. I, I'm not one-up in it this morning, but here's a portion of it. He says, "Ah, oh, yes, brothers and sisters, but where did the Lord wish to be recognized? In the breaking of bread? We're all right, nothing to worry about. We break bread and we recognize the Lord. It was for our sake. That he didn't want to be recognized anywhere but there. Because we weren't going to see him in the flesh. And yet, we were going to eat his flesh. So if you're a believer, any of you, if you're not called a Christian for nothing, if you don't come to church pointlessly, if you listen to the word of God in fear and hope, you may take comfort in the breaking of bread The Lord's absence is not an absence. Have faith, and the one you cannot see is with you. Every Sunday is a road to Emmaus moment. Think about that. Whether you recognize that or not, as we gather week by week, Jesus comes into our midst and we know him in the breaking of bread. We do every Eucharist what they did here. Amazing. And in the Holy Eucharist, I mean, in the canon of the Mass and the Eucharistic prayer, we speak of all the benefits of his passion, the innumerable benefits given to us. When we receive Jesus. We share in the benefits of the Lord's incarnation. Death, resurrection, and ascension. Which, as the prayer book brings out, cannot be numbered. Those benefits cannot be numbered. And moreover, we are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him. We come to know him. We are brought into greater union with the Lord. Listen to the end of the prayer of humble access, which we will pray in just a few moments. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his bodies, and our body and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us, that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. That's the heart of the sacrament, is being united with God in it, of receiving Jesus, receiving his love. So brothers and sisters, let us journey with Cleopas and meet our Lord on the road to Emmaus. Let us search for him in the scriptures and know him in the breaking of bread. And may our hearts burn within us and may our souls be filled with the bread of life as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in the sacrament, when we see the Lord and are united with him, let us be transformed into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.